What's happening, podcast listeners? It's your boy, Matt Baxter, on the Matt Baxter Show. Yep, you guessed it. On this episode, I'm hanging out with an amazing man, Jeff Namath, who has been an automobile executive for quite a long time. He is a man who has uh, served as the CEO of Ford Taiwan, CEO of Ford uh, in South Africa, and he's just been executive at Ford in particular, but also in the automobile industry uh, all across the world. And I'm just super inspired by the man that he is, not just because he's been a high flying executive, but also because he's been able to sit across from the other, you know, sit, sit on the other side of the table from somebody who he may be uh, in disagreement with or view it differently, but say, let's, how do we, how do we listen to each other? How do we have a little bit of empathy? How do we actually, you know, come together and, and focus on a common goal and do this thing together? And I'm just inspired by the man that he is. He's a leader. He's inspirational. He's also a Michigan man. So admittedly, I'm a little biased, but Jeff, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the man that you are and just keep inspiring people. And I hope that everybody enjoyed this episode just as much as I did. Jeff, excited to have you on the show. Glad to be here, man. So this is one of those fun relationships that really started from LinkedIn. I think maybe a year ago, I reached out to you and you were you were very willing to chat and we had a great conversation, uh, probably 34, you know, 30, 40 minutes, really had fun. And I was like, you'd be a perfect guest in this podcast. So number one, thank you for even being willing to chat with me originally. Oh, you bet. You know, you know LinkedIn is a great platform for meeting new people and sharing ideas. And I really enjoy connecting with people that I meet on there. So uh, thank you for connecting back. Absolutely. So uh, give me the life story. I know I know you've done some amazing things. I know. Uh, well, first off, are you are you uh, are you in uh, Michigan now? Or are you traveling? I am in Michigan. I'm sitting in my office, which I've sat in for the last year. So I'm <laughs> glad I renovated it in 2019. Nicely done. Well timed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so it, I moved here to Michigan about 1985 or so. But I haven't lived here that much because I spent 20 years living around the world. Uh, working for Ford Motor Company. My first 10 years from 85 to 95, I worked for GM at a small startup that they had called Saturn. I was the 35th person hired. So uh, we we built that business from the ground up. It was an incredible opportunity and something that really changed my life, just being able to have, you know, to build a $10 billion business um, with a whole bunch of really committed people all with the same in the same direction, and it really taught me how a shared vision and and a, a clear understanding of where you're trying to go and with the brand and with manufacturing and with design can really drive some incredible um, and fast results. So um, that that was probably where my story started in business. And um, but before I I go on to my Ford experience. I'll back up a little bit. I grew up in Indiana, so I'm a Michigan transplant. Um, but <laughs> we, we, like not... you, we like you better in Michigan than Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I ended up, I grew up where I grew up, though. Uh, my parents lived on a golf course, and I could hit a, uh, if I had a good drive from the tee box behind the house, I could actually hit it into Michigan. It was about 250 yards to the state line. Uh, <laughs> Nobody needs so, to know how close you are, but you can, you can hit the ball all the way to Michigan. That's what you need to that's say. That's right. I could hit it into the next state. Um, and, and I went to Notre Dame. Um, we grew, I grew up in South Bend. My father was in a junk there. Uh, so I had a close ties with the, with the university, ended up going there, uh, graduated undergrad in, in business administration and with an engineering concentration. And then I got my MBA there as well. Um, just cause it was easy and close and, and it was, I really enjoyed the experience there. And then, then I went to GM and I told you a little bit about the Saturn story, but to move on to Ford, um, the, when I started with Ford, I started in parts and service and I really started learning how we take care of customers and how important it is to get parts on time and how important it is to make sure the dealers know how to fix cars properly. And, um, hopefully we don't make cars that break, but as we know, they all do eventually. Um, and, and making sure that people were able to get a good service experience. And then I went to Ford Credit and I was responsible for the low APR programs and the leasing programs. So I'm, I was the one that priced all of those programs. Again, um, needing to be really close to the customer and, and understanding what their, what opportunities financing could give them to get into a car or a truck that uh, that maybe was only a dream to them 
in the past to have a new car. So it was a, that was a fantastic job in, in just allowing people um, the opportunity to own a new vehicle where they might not have thought they could. When did, and, when did leasing become like, obviously leasing's, you know, hyper popular now, but when, when was like dates wise, when, when did that really start to be? Yeah. So leasing, leasing kind of took off in the early nineties. Okay. And, and I was there in 97. So we were, um, and up until the nineties in the seventies and eighties, we kind of had this constant increase in new car prices as we put as technology changed and we put more um more electronics and more capability into the platforms and the vehicles uh prices went up to cover the cost of all of that technology and people were willing to pay for it obviously um, but leasing became a way for people to get into a new vehicle without the high payment that a loan might have Right. So it allowed them to afford more car than they could buy. And so it became very popular. And then in the in the late 90s, um, that new car pricing slowed down. So we, we kind of hit a plateau on some of the technological advances for a few years. And as those new car prices slowed down, used car prices slowed down as well. And a lot of those leases had um, kind of had that, that used car escalation built into it. So we started seeing inside the company and, and all the leasing companies, you know, be it GMAC or Toyota Motor Credit or Chrysler Credit at the time, um, they all also were seeing pretty big losses at the end of the lease term. So leasing kind of slowed down um, and, and it's maintained a more, a more sustainable steady state which then makes sure that you don't get too many used car, almost new used cars into the market. Um, and the new car prices have been very stable over the last, you know, 10, 20 years. And all of that supports a very healthy, very sustainable uh, lease op- leasing offer to customers from the financial institutions, which is fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and trends today, have they changed? I mean, so obviously the, the transition from like kind of the technology, the technology plateau, but have leasing trends. I haven't really quite frankly followed. I know used cars are like growing like rapid now, but has leasing trends changed much? Um, they haven't really over the years. That's one in my job now. That's one of the things I look at very closely um, is each brand, you know, have, are they changing their, their strategies? as far as how they go to market loans, leases, um, fleet, you know, the different channels that they might sell their vehicles and leasing has been really, really stable for the last, I look back to about 2010. So of course, anything during the great recession, um, is we kind of start a couple of years after that ended because that kind of threw everything out of whack. Right. Of course. Um, but, um, but since then it's been really stable about 20 to 25% lease, and about 70%, 70 to 75% um, loan. So, and, and very stable at those percentages. No, that's awesome. So you help, you help build out the, uh, build out leasing programs kind of early, early on in that stage. What happens next? Yeah. So, um, so we ended up um, going through a lot of uh, funding mechanisms to try to, to try to mitigate those losses. And we came up with some really creative ways to do it and, and, and really save the financing company uh, some money. And it kind of, I guess, kind of got me noticed. And, and so they asked me to go to Taiwan and become the CFO, chief financial officer of a joint venture that we had there. And one of the things that they wanted us to evaluate is we hadn't made money in Taiwan. Uh, for a few years. And so they said, you know, should we close it down or should we, we need to change the business structure because it's just not working for us or our, or our joint venture partners for that matter. And so I went over and um, they brought in a manager uh, as a CEO, the, an Australian that had just launched 
our supplier park in Chicago for the Explorer plant there. And we restructured the business in Taiwan, really took advantage of um, the capabilities of the workforce. So we had, I think 70% of our factory workers had a college degree, if That's I remember correctly. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And, and working, building cars in Taiwan was, was thought of as kind of a premium job. And so that's why we attracted people with higher educations. But what was great about that is we, as they could problem solve really well. So we, we kind of put together a vision for the company where we wanted to take it, the things we had to work on, the quality issues that had to be fixed and the, and how we could get better throughput and how we could rebalance the line um, so we could build vehicles better and faster. And we kind of left it a lot of that work after we communicated the vision, we left a lot of that work up to the plant and they had, they call them quality circles and they were about 10 or 15 people that were line workers that would get together every day after work and try to solve the quality issues and the throughput issues. And they fixed it. I, they fixed it themselves, right? It was kind of like a do it yourself project and our output went up. We went from 300, I think 300 cars a day to 500 cars a day. And our quality got much, much better. Um, you know, it was just really engaging the workers in the issues and the opportunities and they stepped up. So it was, it was a fantastic um, learning experience for me on the power of utilizing the people that are closest to the business and closest to the problem. I, <clears throat> excuse me, I cannot even begin to imagine the, how like the case studies you could do or just the pure like differences of a Ford plant in Taiwan versus South Africa versus Detroit. I mean, I would imagine just number one, like just to sit back and culturally look at the differences between how people look at. And the, I mean, it's fascinating to hear you say that like 70% of people who worked, uh, uh, at the factory were college educated and also it was like a premier looking job like maybe like in, at least in the United States now factory work isn't always looked at as a premium I mean not that it's not but like it's just that that's that's fascinating to see just the wide range of differences between different plants and I bet you got to see some really cool stuff in that oh for sure and, and you know when uh, one of the things we measure when, every year we do an employee satisfaction survey it's called our pulse and, and we measure advocacy. So would you be willing to recommend working at Ford Motor Company to a family member or a friend? And it's funny how that, that varies from country to country. And the, uh, the Taiwanese advocacy number was really high, but it was even higher in South Africa. So not only do, is it considered a premium job, but it's a job that you want to advocate for your neighbors and your family to come and work there with you. And it, it makes it really easy to engage the workforce in the, in the success and the, and the struggles for that matter of the business and, and engage them. How, uh, how long were you in Taiwan for? Well, I was there for three years as a CFO and then I went to, I came back to the U.S. for a couple of years. I worked in product development um, as a finance controller on the Fusion and the Edge and the Escape Hybrid program, the first Escape Hybrid program, which was way back in the early in the early two thousands. And then um, I went from there to Mazda for three years as a corporate strategy manager, and that was really a learning experience working in a Japanese company as one of a few Americans. Um, and then I went to back to Taiwan as the CEO, as the managing director, because they had kind of lost their way a bit. And so the, the guy who was the CEO when I was the CFO ran Asia at that point. And he said, go back. I want you to go back and fix Taiwan. So I spent three years there as a CFO and three years there as a CEO. And uh, so I have six years in total. 
That's amazing. Um, <clears throat> you may not, you may not be able to answer this, and if if you can't, that's okay. But if you walked into like a factory, like a, a standard Ford factory today, or any 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 of them, typically, what years are they working on? Like, if, or sorry, if like the the design, the standard like designs that are happening, how far in advance? Like, how many years in advance are is it being worked on? Yeah, it varies by program, right? So if you've got a brand new platform, you're not doing an update on an existing platform. Um, it's you know in the four year in the four year range. Okay. If you if you're doing an update on an existing platform, um, I mean it could look completely new, but if the engine and the suspension, the whole the underpinnings are carryover, then it's more like a two year, two to three year program. Yeah. Um, it really depends how big the change is and how um, how much new technology you're bringing in. Like if you're bringing in a hybrid system to a vehicle that's got you know then that's a lot of big technology differences and it's electrical architecture that takes a long time to to change all of that in a platform even though it sounds like you're just plugging a battery in when you sit in a car does your mind race or can you like i don't know how you'd ever be able to calmly sit in a car without being able to think about all the different ins and outs that you work on day to day <laughs> Well, you notice every little thing, right? Exactly. exactly. So I used to, I used to, you know, a very small example. I used to mow lawns, right? And you can never drive by a yard without critiquing the way somebody mowed. So you working in cars, how do you ever sit in a car? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and um, the other thing is when you know we'll be driving down the road and I'll see a really good execution of something by one of our competitors, and and I'll I'll just say, oh. Damn it! <laughs> and my family will go, "What? What? I, oh, just the taillights on that car are awesome." <laughs> it's like, why didn't I think of that all the time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. So you come back, you become CEO for a few years at, at Taiwan. What happens? What happens next? Um, yeah. So I. So the um, we're wrapping up. Kind of, I'm wrapping up my three year assignment in Taiwan, and uh, they had a really good. I groomed somebody to replace me. The best way to get a good next job is to have somebody that can step into your job, you know, really easily because it's uh, at least you remove that barrier. And so uh, I had a really good second in command and, um, and I went back and I said, you know, I think we're set and I'm ready for my next opportunity. And they, they decided to send me to South Africa. And the first thing, you know, I'm getting all these notes after it was announced. And the first thing that I got was, wow, good luck. You know, you, you go, are going from the most educated, industrious workforce to a really skill-challenged um, workforce in South Africa. And um, so I, I go everywhere with an open mind. So Sorry, you, I, you might have said this. What, what year is this when you first started? 2010. 2010. Okay, cool. Yeah, 2010. So it, one of the things that was great about that move, on a personal note, is the World Cup was happening in South Africa um, right when I got there. And what, that was a fantastic experience. I, I'm, I wasn't a soccer fan, and now I am. So, uh, so that was fun. But um, so I get there, and we're building about you know, a little less than 20,000 vehicles a year. Uh, in a plant that's capacitized for a hundred thousand and we're only working three days a week. Um, our sales aren't very good. Uh, so, so we started, you know, we got there and we started looking at what could we do to pick sales up and what could we do to try to get the plant better capacitized. So we started working on, where could we export? You know, it's going to take a while to fix the sales because um, you've got to re, kind of rebuild the dealer body and come up with a, you have to rebuild your brand and you have to put yourself in a different place in the marketplace. And that takes time um, because customers have to perceive that. You just can't do it. And, uh, and so I said, why, why can't we export some of these vehicles? So the continent of Africa was getting their export vehicles from Thailand, our plant in Thailand that built the Ranger. That's what we built, the, the Ranger pickup truck. 
So I approached the company and said, you know, why, why aren't we servicing Africa from South Africa instead of Thailand? And so we put a big study together and kind of proved that we could do a better job out of South Africa servicing the customer, serving the customers faster, just from logistics, um, not even talking about cost and, and profit, which was better from South Africa as well, but just being able to service customers better. So we did that. Um, so we, we went, we doubled our production by doing that. So that got us up to working five days a week again. And, and then people, you know, we're in, in South Africa, the, if you don't work, you don't get paid. So if they were working three days a week, they were only getting 60% of their pay. And it's hard for them to make ends meet. Um, it's hard for people to come to work and get excited about work when they're worried about putting food on the table for their family or meeting their rent obligation or their utility payments. And so that was my first, really my highest priority was to get the plant going five days a week. And we were able to do that pretty quickly. So within six months, we had that Africa business. The plant was running full, you know, a full shift. Everybody's working. Um, we started working on, then we started working on improving quality and throughput. Um, so I walked out one day, uh, that, that part of the journey was really, really special. Um, I walked out one day and I like to just walk down the line and kind of watch, I try to spend half an hour a day, one, because it was great exercise because the plant's a mile long, and the other because I just like to see what's going on. I love, love my business and I love watching cars be built. I, I love seeing shiny new cars coming out of the back of the plant. So that was kind of my entertainment for the day. My, my me time was walking the line and I stopped and I watched somebody putting some parts in the car and he stopped, he looked, he looked at me and he stopped for a minute, he walked over and he said, are you the new CEO? And I said, yeah. And he said, can I show you something? I said, you bet. So he went over and he was, had to pull the carpet back to put a part in the car. And he said, if I put, if this part was put in further up the line before the par carpet was put in, then I wouldn't have to pull the carpet back to put it in. And when I, I can't always get it, so that it lays back flat without a wrinkle in it um, before the next car is coming by and I have to go to the next job. So I said, gosh, have you told your supervisor that? And he said, yeah, about three months ago and nothing happened. So I said, introduce me to your supervisor. So we walked over there and um, I asked the supervisor what was going on. And he said, well, I gave it to the industrial engineering guy, our, our industrial engineer for this part of the line. So, um, we walked over there and, and we talked to the industrial engineer. He introduced me to the industrial engineer and I asked him about that project or about that suggestion. And he said, yeah, we raised a project on that. Um, I'm not sure anything's been done on it. And I said, how hard could this be? Yeah. How many, how many different people do you need to talk to, to pass it along, to pass it along, to pass it along, to actually get something done? Yeah. So, so I walked from his office over to the plant manager's office and um, talked to the plant manager, who was fantastic. He had no idea any of this was going on. And um, he said, come back out tomorrow. And so we came out, I came out tomorrow, the next day, and the plant manager walked me over to the line, and they were putting the part on before they put the car. Yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> motion, 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 motion put into work and motion made. That's, that's amazing. I, yeah. Here, hearing you talk about like the fact that you when you when you first got there the whole the whole crowd or the the whole factory workers were only working three days a week. I mean, what an amazing impact that like Ford as a company, but also you got to witness of saying how can we build this big enough that not only you know does is the, the Ford plant producing more and making more money and all that great great great, but the fact that you could actually have that big of an impact on a massive community purely by building that business big enough to go from three days a week to five days a week. People are paid. People have got money coming. I mean, what, what an amazing thing. Yeah. That's what's so fulfilling. Right. And if you talk to my kids, my kids will tell you, nobody cares more about the workers than my dad. Right. Cause I talk about them all the time when I come home. And I think that's, that's a, and I'm not saying that to, you know, because I'm bragging, but I'm saying that because, I think that's a key leadership quality. 100%. Is, is worrying more about 
the people that you serve than you worry about yourself. And I've never worried about my career and getting to the next level. I've always worried about, am I having fun? Am I helping people? <laughs> am I making a difference? And am I acting as a change agent? And that's really what drives me as a leader. And, you know, I've been very coincidentally, potentially, um, I've been very successful um, in my career, you know, and, and I think it's because I worry about the right things. Um, talking a little bit more about the South Africa team. So <clears throat> that talking to that guy, it had kind of inspired me. And I said, you know, our, the people here aren't really encouraged to be engaged. And you'll recall the conversation I had about Taiwan a few minutes ago. And I, I was trying to get to that point where now these people aren't college educated. Most of them, any education they have, we gave it to them. Um, there was a kind of a, uh, what we would term a ghetto, um, kind of a shanty town next to the plant. And that's where most of our workers came from. And of course, once they worked for us, they were able to write, raise their families out of that poverty. But they came to us without a lot of skills. And so we skilled them up ourselves. Um, and But what we didn't do is we didn't engage them in the business. And two things happened. And the first one um, we used to, I'll tell you about is we used to get a lot of strikes and three or four a year, what we would call wildcat strikes here where the workers just walked out. And it was, it was usually over something like a disciplinary action. I remember we changed the payroll system one time and we shorted pay like 10% and, and it took us a week to get them back to work because they didn't trust us. They thought we were trying to steal from them. And actually, it was just an error in the coding of the payroll system, um, which is, I, don't get me wrong, 10% to these guys is a big deal when you look hand them out. Well, it's also, it's also one of those things that, the, you know, about the only thing you can't mess with uh, as an employer is payroll. And, and <laughs> that people people do not respond well to that. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so I'm, I'm getting these strikes over things that I think can be avoided, right? So... I thought, how can I try to stop this from happening? So what we did is we created a quarterly business meeting with the union shop stewards, which are the elected leaders in the manufacturing plant. And so every quarter I'd sit down with them and I told them right up front, hey, listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you things that you've never been told before about the way the business operates what our challenges are, what our opportunities are, where we're trying to go with it. But I'm only gonna tell you this stuff if it stays in this room. And, um, and they respected that. And, they, and it did stay in the room. I never heard of anything that leaked out. And this is over eight years I worked in South Africa and I had this meeting um, you know, four times a year with our shop stewards. And so I brought them into the strategy, the challenges, um, of the business and made them own it with us. And, and they were part of, not only part of the, then part of the problem, but they were part of determining the solutions. And that action alone pretty much stopped all the strikes. And, you know, it, what they did then is they thought they were, they had ownership and they were empowered to enact change. And I really believe that people want to be involved in decisions that affect their lives. And what we did is brought the union into that conversation. And it completely changed the relationship between union and labor in in the plant. It's I so mean that, it's it's so cool to hear. I mean you just you just think how hindsight simple now, I'm not saying it was easy, but simple just saying, hey, let's get in a room and we're willing to listen and we're also willing to share our approach to this. And the fact that you as you know, you as as the leader here and just will, you're willing to take time to hear what they have to say, that alone is so disarming for people that are upset, angry, whatever it may be. And the fact that they got to be involved, you, you guys may have disagreed and you may have said, you know, ultimately, this is the direction we're going to go. But the fact that they got to see some of the thought process, hear the decisions. It's like, oh, we actually understand where they're coming from. Like, that's that's such a powerful thing. Oh, it, it is. And I don't know why people, you know, why that isn't done more often. 
Um, but the, the cool thing was, it wasn't easy, Matt, believe me. Um, the first meeting was all about them complaining about, you know, grievances in the plant and, and, and that's not what it was intended to be, but that in the past, the only time the leadership ever met with them was either to solve a strike or if there was a potential strike because there were serious grievances. And this was not that it took, we met, we met monthly for like the first three or four sessions to get them to under, you know, just to recondition the communication between leadership and labor into something different. So, but it was powerful once we did it, as I said, the other thing we did, um, that worked so well, I thought, wow, how can we scale this and get more of a communication between all our 4,000 line workers, not just the, 12 shop stewards. And so we decided that we had a couple plants that were really, really good at this. And they had launched a related work group project in India where they took about 20 people that uh, work in the same area and kind of on the same jobs and they're called natural work groups. So they, they basically band together themselves. And you tell them, the people on the line, get about between 15 and 25 of you together and so that you can share um, what's going on in the plant. And we tried to teach it, and that didn't work. So, so I decided, let's just send all of our, you know, all of our supervisors on the line and kind of the thought leaders on the line. So they may not be supervisors, but other workers kind of go to them when they've got questions or issues. And we sent them to our plant in India, 250 of them in groups of 20 over the course of about a year. And when they came and to, to, and we immersed them for two weeks on the line, working with our Indian employees and and just learning the way they work together and the way they created these work groups and the responsibility that those work groups took on. And, and we came back and we brought them back and about, and we were trying to, to get them to use what they had learned. Um, and, and it was difficult. And I remember we had an every Wednesday night meeting and we had the people that went to India and their team members come in and we'd have two or three of these groups and we'd have them do PowerPoint presentations to, to try to get their workers to understand what we wanted them to do. And it just wasn't working. And one of the workers came up to me and said, do we have to use PowerPoint? And I said, uh, no, not really. And he said, cause we don't know how to use it. It's really hard. We can't get our point across. Will, will you let us, do it the way we, we want to do it. I said, absolutely. Let's, let's try what you want to do. What they did was they created songs and skits and dances to help communicate. It turned into like an entertainment hour, but it was the way they communicated with each other. And it was like, I, we found the key that unlocked the, the lock <laughs> and talk about, you know, this, American sitting there that's used PowerPoint his whole career. And then the first time this happened and I saw this, I'm like, you know, what is this? And this is never going to work and I don't understand it, but it was exactly what worked for them. That's the and, really from, from, you know, corporate PowerPoint guy to karaoke uh, as a, as a way to like effectively, you know, showcase what you're trying to say. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so then like a, a month later, the plant manager called me to come in before they started the line. And the line started at 6.30. And he said, um, I want you to see something. So we walked out there. I walked in and he said, this is the way the plant usually starts. is about 6.25, people start wandering in. And at 6.30, the, the whistle blows. The line starts, go, runs for about 10 seconds. And then we have to shut it down because everybody's not ready to work. They're not at their stations. And then we wait about 10 minutes and we started up about 640. 
and then everybody's working. And he said, that's, that's the way this plan has run for decades. He said, I want you to see the way it runs now. And about six, between 6.10 and 6.15, people started wandering in, and we're just standing there kind of in the middle of the plant watching this. And he said, this is 15 to 20 minutes earlier than, than they have come in before. And then at about 6.20, they all started forming circles of these 20 natural work groups um, all over the plant. And so there's about 100 of them, right? Because we got 2,000 per shift. Yeah. So about 100 of these things. And um, the he said, you know, why don't we – why don't we go see what they're doing? And um, he said, he said, why don't you pick? Because I don't want you to think I set this up. So just pick one of these groups. So I picked one, we worked, went over, and they each had a role. So the one guy reviewed, hey, we ran out of gloves yesterday. He was the supply guy. We ran out of gloves yesterday. So this is what we're going to do to make sure we don't run out of gloves. The next guy was quality guy. And he said, we had these, the audit at the end of the line picked up two problems that happened on our, on our line yesterday. And this is where they happened. This is a station they happened in. This is why we believe they happened. Let's make sure that we pay extra attention so that that doesn't happen again today. And another guy was glue. And another guy was, um, you know, scheduling the, the relief, scheduling the break time in. Anyway, all these guys did before was put tires on cars. And now they're managing the business. And each of them have a management role in that part of their business. And so now they're engaged. They're part of something bigger than they were before. They're empowered. They feel a sense of responsibility and a sense of accomplishment. When they have a good day, they celebrate it. It was absolutely the, the plant was a completely different plan. It was energetic. Everybody's involved. And we went internally, we measure quality of the output of the plant. And we were one of the lower quality plants. And we went in the course of three quarters, we marched up that quality scale. And we went from near the bottom to third best in the company out of 55 plants. That's so quality. And, and <clears throat> how do you, you know, you go back to you go back to leadership and you say, how do we replicate that? And it's a very simple thing. You you empower people. I mean, how like I'm not saying it's easy. It's definitely not easy, but just how simple a little bit of empowerment and ownership it, it goes a long way, obviously. And then <clears throat> to even further that, it also justifies a business case to do so. Like anybody sitting in a corporate boardroom is saying, Well, that's a you know, ownership and empowerment is a nice soundbite, but let's see the results. Well, you guys prove the results. Yeah, exactly. And and the vice president, to his credit, the, the corporate officer in charge of quality came out to South Africa um, to see what happened because he, he saw the results, right? And he's like, holy cow, how'd they do this? And so he came out to see how we did it without ever knowing how we did it. That's and and we took him through this story and, and he said, wow, we've got to figure out how to do this in more plants. That's so cool. You know, it was cool. Jeff, for, for you now, what are you spending most of your time thinking about? What are you spending most of your time? Like, where, where's most of your energy going now? Well, when, <clears throat> when we wrapped up in South Africa, um, excuse me, I had to take a drink. Um, we, we came, I was talking to the co company, and I actually, when I left, I was in finance, if you'll recall back. When I, went, when I went for my first overseas role. Yep. And the way it works is who, whatever group you were in when you left is the group you come back to. So they have to guarantee, we call it a buyback. Otherwise, nobody would ever leave, right? Because there's no guarantee they have a job when they come back. So um, I went and talked to the CFO. And I said, um, you know, I've been, you owned me. <laughs> Do you even want me? You know, I haven't worked in finance in, in, 10 years. And he said, well, I've got a great role for you. Um, and it's the board taking care of the board of directors, um, you know, kind of chief of chief of that administrative function. And he said, but he said, you were running a $4 billion business. And he said, is making PowerPoints for the board going to get you up in the morning? And I said, well, honestly, probably not. And 
he said, okay, he said, let me find something else. And he did. Um, we have a relationship with our customers, with our new customers, that is really good. So we survey intenders, people who are out shopping um, or who may be shopping. We survey them. We talk to them. We have focus groups. We understand what they're looking for in a vehicle, um, how much they want to pay, what type of relationship they want to have with their dealer. And we, we know all of this about new car customers. And we design cars and processes, dealer processes, based on that feedback that we have from new car customers. What we don't, what we didn't have is any kind of a relationship with our used car customers. And so every year we sell, I don't know, three, three million car, new cars in the U.S. Um, and we sell seven, 10, close to 10 million used cars. And, you know, through all, not through a lot of them through dealerships, but a lot of them through independence, private sales. And a lot of the people that buy those cars have no relationship with Ford Motor Company, with the brand. And yet they're ambassadors of our brand. They're, they use our products. They're, um, you know, they're, they're experiencing a, the, they're, they're experiencing the Ford experience, but without any input from us or any effect from us. So that's the job that they asked me to take on is to define and improve the, the ownership experience with our used customers. What a cool, and, oh, go, keep, go ahead, keep going. Yeah, and so what we did is, is we, I, the first thing I did is I got there and I said, show me all the research we have on used, our used customer base. And it was like crickets, right? We, we had never done that. And it, it was understandable if you're a businessman You've got no revenue stream from used customers. So why would you invest inside the company? Why would you invest resources in an area that you didn't have any revenue? Right. So that piece of it makes sense, right? So then what we needed to do was we needed to demonstrate how satisfying our used customers improves our brand and improves our new car sales and improves the value of our used cars, which then it's kind of like a flywheel, right? The more your used cars are worth, the easier it is for customers to trade them in and buy a new car. Yep. So, so it all was a virtual, virtuous circle. And so we went out, we started researching used car customers. What is it about Ford that, that you like? What do you dislike? What, what would you like us to do differently? Do you trust us? And we, we went out and did a lot of trust research because when you think about somebody buying a used car, we'll contrast that to a new car. New car, you got a three-year warranty, you've got a dealer, you got a big building that that dealer sits in that you can go back to, you know where to get issues solved. A used car customer doesn't have any of those safety nets in a lot of cases. They're buying it from a CarMax or a Carvana or a private sale a lot of them buy through dealers are dealers and they do have that recourse um, if they have a problem, but they're taking a risk. And so they price that risk into what they're willing to pay for the car. And so the more they trust you as a brand and as a, as a company and as a vehicle, the more they're willing to pay. And because that, that has a value to them, they're, they're not having to take that risk. And so they're willing they're willing to pay more to avoid that risk. And so my job has been to, to connect with our 32 million used car customers who we didn't know, used car owners um, that we hadn't connected with. And about, about 10 million of them we knew because the car was still under warranty or they bought them through a dealer or they got an extended warranty. So we had, we had their contact information and, and we did know who they were and um, we would send them out um, occasional mailers, but the other 38 million, 32, 38 million, we, uh, we didn't know. So that my role really was to connect with them in a way that was meaningful to them. And we've been working on, that's what I've been working on for the last three years. And, and what it translated to inside the company is focusing on the cost of ownership. 
So a lot of times when we think about buying a car, we think about the sticker price, right? Or the monthly payment. And depending on, on what's more important to you. And what we don't really think about as often, perhaps, is what it's going to cost to operate that vehicle. So fuel costs, insurance costs, repair costs, maintenance costs, all those sorts of costs. Um, but what we do, we do feel it in our wallet. And you do hear people talk, standing around a barbecue, they'll say, yeah, I've had my car for five years. All I've ever done is put air in the tires, you know, and change the oil. And other people will say, yeah, I had to replace the water pump and my shock absorbers went out and gosh, my brakes needed a complete overhaul. You know, and, and they may not think of it in dollars and cents, but it translates to them in, hey, that car is expensive to own. So what we've done internally is we refocused our engineering teams on cost of ownership and really designing cars to so that they're easy to service, so that when you do service it, the parts are are broken down in a way that you don't have to buy a big, a big expensive assembly. You can buy smaller components for th that still affect the right repair, but are make it cheaper for the uh, for the owner, and really focusing on that cost of ownership, which then helps build trust as well, because people know that if you buy a Ford, it's not going to break the bank, and um, so that's been that's been a really fulfilling role. I love that, and I also love uh, you know your your. Uh the guy who wanted to assign you to basically building PowerPoints for the board, he kind of stole, stole my thunder because my favorite question on the planet is what gets you out of bed in the morning? And what you answered there was building PowerPoints for board, although it may be a crucial role, may not be the most fulfilling to you. And I love kind of the transition of what you're doing now. So not not just in the context of what you're doing, you know, in, in the auto industry, but I guess just as much for you personally, my favorite question on the planet is what gets you out of bed in the morning? And obviously you've touched a, bit, a little bit based on that, but I'd love to hear kind of taking a step back of just your life and, and, and what you're spending time doing and what is it that continuously drives you uh, to get out of bed in the morning now? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, thanks for the great open-ended question. <laughs> um, yeah, I could take that anywhere. Right. So personally, um, in this time of year, I water ski every morning at six o'clock with my, the people on my street. So, um, that gets me out of bed a little bit earlier than in the winter time. Um, <laughs> you're not, you're, not, you're I, not doing that in cold Michigan days. <laughs> uh, no, we just started, so we didn't. We were going to go today, but 49 degrees is a little cold for us, so we yeah. didn't go. Uh, but uh, but I'll be out there every morning from here until September. And um, the the other thing um, that that I really love doing is I really love um, the work that I've been doing on trust and. I've been working a lot with people outside of the organization as well as inside the organization on how you build trusted relationships um, with people and how important that can be. Um, one of the uh, one of the guys that that is a leader, thought leader on this, is focusing on trust and and he came um, to Ford to do a talk, what you know, kind of a town hall talk, and I spent ninety minutes with him afterwards and. It was interesting when I was talking about what we were trying to do, and that's not so much how do people, what do people, how do people want to be trust treated to build trust, but how the way we're focusing on it is what drives people to behave in an untrustworthy manner or in a in a me in a way that destroys trust. So what incentives are there? People don't just do that, right? It's because of the reward system, either internal or external, the, people, the companies they work with. What is it that drives people to tell like a, somebody that's coming into a Ford dealer that wants to get their car fixed and the person says, hey, I really need it back tomorrow. And the person that's, that's talking to them says, uh, okay, we'll have it for you tomorrow when he knows that there's a low likelihood that they'll have time to get to it before the next day. And what drives people to have those kinds of conversations, just as an example. And when I talk to them about the physiology of trust and the mindset around modifying behaviors so that people behave in a more trustworthy manner, he said, 
you know, he said, we've been preaching um, the trust tree. What are the leaves? What are the, you know, the things that you described? What, what are the things that, that people look at that help them trust someone? What are those emotional connections? He said, you're chopping at the roots of the tree, right? And trying to fix the roots of the tree, which is not, you know, what people are experiencing, but what drives people to create the right experience. And he said, we've never thought of that before. And so I've been working with him um, and with others on how we'll move forward kind of in that direction with, um, with understanding that physiology. So that's, I think that's a fantastic opportunity because we're just coming out of really a decade of distrust. You know, everything that happened in the last decade and what a better, you know, what a, a better way to highlight that than COVID-19, right? And, um, and so this is a real opportunity for the, the 20s the 2020s to be really a decade of rebuilding trust. <laughs> the roaring 20s, baby, the roaring 20s, the decade of trust. I like that a lot. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, Jeff, seriously, this has been awesome hearing your story. This has been so fun to have you. Um, for people that want to follow along in some of the work that you're doing or reach out to you or connect with you, what's what's the best way for somebody to uh, tag along with what you got going on? Yeah, I'd say um, my LinkedIn profile. Um, is uh is probably a good way to get in touch with me i try to answer most of the uh, notes i get on that on uh, linkedin and uh also you know post occasionally stuff we're doing so that's probably the best way to do it that's awesome well jeff seriously thank you so much for being a guest this has been fantastic and uh appreciate all the work that you're doing the trust that you're building great thanks a lot man it was great talking to you again You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter Show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to su subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at thematbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.